Good morning, church family. It's good to see you this Lord's Day. For those of you who are watching online, I want to welcome you this morning as well. Um, If you want, you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8 and then put maybe a note card in there uh, and then close them just for a moment. Uh, I've got a few things related to just church life activity that I'd like to share with you before we get into the message. Mike, if it's possible to get some of the lights in the back uh, turned on, that'd be great just for those who want to follow along. Uh, Is that better for your viewing experience, at least of the Word of God, not me? (laughs) Okay, so here's the deal. We've got a pink flower to my left and your right. Um, Ivy Louise Illies was born on June 6th to Connor and Courtney. Are you here this morning? Okay, well, that doesn't matter. Let's praise God for the arrival of Ivy. Awesome. You know what? I want to ask for your uh, prayers for this upcoming week. Uh, Several of us, five of us actually, will be going as delegates to the annual meeting for the Evangelical Covenant Church, our denomination uh, in Kansas City. I'll be there from Tuesday through Sunday, and uh, just appreciate your prayers uh, for that time away. And I do want to welcome Naomi Sands to our staff. She's the director of uh, nursery and preschool ministry. Uh, She will be uh, stepping in and starting in that position officially uh, tomorrow, uh, uh, Monday, June 20th. And so if you see Naomi around, welcome her, thank her for her service, and uh, be excited for her as she joins our staff giving uh, leadership to our children's ministry with Pastor Shanda. All right, well, it's time to get into the Word this morning. And so Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, we're going to go through verse 8. Um, And if you have your Bibles with you, please follow along. I think it's on the screen behind me as well as, hey, there's some new pew Bibles in front of you. If you didn't bring one and you want to follow along in there, it's the ESV. You can do that. Um, I'm reading out of the NLT. So here we go. Chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Today we're going to talk about the importance of personal evangelism and how God, in his giving of a mission to the local church to go into the world and preach the good news about Jesus, began to make this happen starting in Jerusalem and eventually going to the ends of the earth You could say we exist in that time of where the ends of the earth are being reached. And the question that we all have to wrestle with today is how am I participating in the mission of God by way of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with people in my life? 
Pray with me. God, thank you for the word of God, for the encouragement that we as a church family can receive today. God, I pray that as we consider the life of Philip, a man who becomes an example to us of one who boldly proclaimed the good news in a place that was unpopular, that we would see in him an example that we would be willing to follow, that we as a church family would take serious the need to not just keep Jesus to ourselves, but share Jesus with the world, that others may experience what we have in you, in Christ's name, amen. How many of you are familiar with the story of Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, missionaries to Ecuador? Raise your hand. Some of you, many of you. For those of you who are not familiar with these two missionaries, they're actually two of five missionaries who went to Ecuador to reach an unreached people group. A news flash alerted the world, five men missing in Aka territory. The date was Monday, January 9th, 1956. A team of missionary pioneers trying to make peaceful contact with an infamous tribe of Indians in Ecuador had failed to make a scheduled radio call, and this set the alarms off at home. Their efforts came to an end on January 8th, the day prior, in 1956, when all five, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udernian, were attacked and speared by a group of native warriors. By Friday of that week, a team of people reached the missionaries' campsite, and they hurried to bury four of the bodies. The men had died violently from re repeated spear wounds and machete cuts. The fifth body, Ed McCauley, was never located after being identified on the beach, but then washed away by the river. Five widows and eight orphans mourned the deaths of their loved ones. And as they mourned, they looked to God for comfort and direction. And the world stood by, witnessed in stunning amazement the death of these five missionaries. The deaths of the men galvanized the missionary effort in the United States, sparking an outpouring of funding for evangelism efforts around the world. Their work is still frequently remembered in evangelical publications, and in, in 2006, you may remember, but this event, this experience, became a movie known as The End of the Spear. A few years after the death of the men, the widow of Jim Elliot, Elizabeth, and the sister of Nate, Saint Rachel, returned to Ecuador as missionaries with the Summer Institute of Linguistics to live among the natives who killed their loved ones. Can you imagine? Nate Saint's son, Steve, also lived among the natives that killed his father. This eventually led to the conversion of many including some of the men who had done the killing. 
The painful arrival of the gospel among the violent people worked a miracle of transformation. This is also how the gospel began to spread. Beginning in Jerusalem, it went then to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth in the early church. Persecution to the Christian church is nothing new. It existed from the very beginning. And uniquely enough, God has always been able to use the persecution of his people to advance the gospel throughout the world. While the church rightly grieved over Stephen's death, we talked about him last week, God used it to advance his redemptive purposes. And because of persecution, in fact, because of persecution, as a result of persecution, the church scattered outside of Jerusalem and fulfilled God's direction given to the disciples in Acts 1.8 when he said, go to Jerusalem and wait until I send you my Holy Spirit. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will receive the power from on high and you will be my witnesses in the world, beginning in Jerusalem, then to Judea, Samaria, and eventually you will go to the ends of the earth. See, Satan from the very beginning has been at work trying to stop God's plan of telling the world the good news about God's one and only son, Jesus Christ. And no matter how hard Satan works to stop the message of the gospel from going into the world, he is unable to do so. You see, God's plan to tell the world about Jesus isn't through some special people. No, actually, it's through some very special people. People that he has saved people that make up the church, people like you, people like me. And when we become part of the family of God, not only do we have a right relationship with God where we can experience God and the intimacy that he has in a relationship with us, but then we're given a task, a responsibility, and an assignment to go into the world and to tell people the good news that changed our lives. See, I think that over the past 40 to 50 years, maybe longer, something has happened in the Christian church. We've wanted to, maybe you could say, sell Christianity as something that comes with health and wealth and wholeness, that comes with comfort and ease, that comes with blessing and reward. When in actuality, Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple... You have to die to yourself daily. You have to count the cost. You have to understand that it's not going to be an easy life. It's going to be a hard life. With the life of following Jesus, it may be inevitable that you and I have to suffer at some point in our life for Christ, and that's understandable. But at the same time, when we are a part of the family of God, we also have the reward to look forward to. The provision, the protection, the comfort, the care, all those things that we want, we can have. But let's not mistake our understanding of what it really means to follow Jesus. It means that we must die to ourselves so that we can live for God every single day. 
While suffering may be inevitable as Christians, God's mission, let me remind you, is unstoppable. God's mission is unstoppable. If you're taking notes this morning, the first point I want you to write down is that God can use hardships in life to advance his plans. God can use hardships in life to advance his plans. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely to the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all believers except the apostles were scattered through the region of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Wow. Through the death of Stephen, we're introduced to a man named Saul, the great Christian persecutor and destroyer of the church. Let me take you back just for a moment to set the scene. I do believe it was the Saul, this man named Saul, who was a Pharisee, a young champion in the uh, Jewish religion. He was uh, from Tarsus. He was trained by Gamaliel. He was one of those people who, according to the law, he was blameless. He was the next up-and-coming man that the religious leaders were going to look to in the Jewish religion. This was Saul. I believe it was also Saul who debated with Stephen in the synagogues. And it was Saul who brought these charges, at least initially persuaded some people to bring some false accusations against Stephen, upon which he went to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin then found him guilty of blasphemy. Now at this point, those charges brought death. I want you to vision, or put a visual in your mind with me about what this would have looked like. Stephen before the council, guilty verdict. They grab him and they escort him outside of the city limits to a place where people commonly were stoned to death. Oftentimes there was a ledge and the ledge was a cliff that was two times the height of an average person. The first witness was to push the man to death. If he didn't die, the second witness was to grab a big stone and throw it on their heart to crush them. If they didn't die, then it became the congregation's responsibility to pick up the rocks and make sure he was dead. And this is exactly what's going on. So Stephen is in the pit, rocks are being thrown at him, And as he is in a place of despair, he looks up to the Father, and what does he say to Jesus Christ? He says, receive my spirit. And then what does he say? An extension of grace to those who were stoning him. He says, do not hold their sin against them. Now, what place did Saul have in all of this? Saul was the one who stood as a witness to the stoning of Stephen And he was the Pharisee who, when it came time for the congregation to put him to death, 
I'm going to take my coat off so I can really let him have it. And they laid the coat at the feet of Stephen. And in doing so, or at the feet of Saul, and in doing so, Saul essentially was a person of authority who said, I agree to everything you're doing. Kill the man. He's blasphemy. This is what's going on. So in verse 1, we read, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed to completely kill Stephen. See, the best attempts to kill the church only made it grow faster and made it grow stronger. Now, Saul, the persecutor, eventually converted to Christianity and was given a new name, and his name was Paul. Saul the persecutor became Paul the apostle. And he began, he became one of the greatest evangelists of the Christian faith to ever live. And I can't help but wonder how much influence Stephen had on Saul's conversion to the person of Paul. See, it's now that God begins to advance his plan of sharing the gospel with the world through a unique circumstance, and this circumstance was persecution. Look at what Paul or Saul was actually doing to the church. He went from house to house, knocking on the door. Maybe he went from synagogue to synagogue, knocking on the door. Within Jerusalem, it's likely there was up to 500 synagogues within the city. These were the places where these Greek-speaking Jews and, and Jews from Jerusalem were coming to meet. And it was there that people were being converted to Christianity. And so Saul's going about grabbing men and women, brutally beating them and putting them in prison. Saul was eager to punish anybody who followed Jesus. One commentator stated, few people in the 21st century West, that's us, have ever experienced religious persecution. We may endure a little mockery at school, a sarcastic slam at work, some ruffled feathers in the neighborhood, but little more. It would be exceedingly revealing if persecution put our modern-day churches to the test. One wonders how many would quickly defect. Though the early believers fled, they did not defect. I believe that persecution is knocking at our door for those of us in the West. And I do think that our faith is going to be tested like it's never been tested before. The question that I have for you this morning is, will you be courageous enough to stand boldly for Jesus Christ? Or will you be a coward and flee? The advancement of the gospel is dependent on us standing firm in the word of God and in the message of Jesus Christ. Essentially, what we see in chapter 8 is the beginning of part 2 of God's mission plan to reach people in this world. Part 1 began in Jerusalem. Part 2 goes to Judea, Samaria, and part 3 to the ends of the earth. And right now in part two, what we see is that the gospel is going to begin to be spread out as a result of the church being persecuted. God uses it to send people to other parts of the world to tell people about Jesus. And in fact, in verse four, we read, but the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus 
wherever they went. Quite literally, they gossiped the gospel. They told everybody about Jesus. The word here is the word we understand to be evangelism. It's to bring good news, the coming of the kingdom of God, the salvation that's to be obtained through Christ, and of what relates to that salvation. This was as they were going about their daily life, they told people about Jesus and their need for him. I want to give you an example of what maybe this looked like. As these people, Christians, were leaving Jerusalem and going to the other parts of the world, they were showing up likely by the masses, and as they entered into communities, they were meeting people. And as they met people, you can imagine how the conversation goes, right? Hey, welcome to town. Where are you from? Well, actually, I just came from Jerusalem. Whoa, no way. Did you hear what's going on in Jerusalem? Like in Jerusalem, we hear about the Christians. They're part of this thing called the church upon which, remember when Jesus was here and then they, they, they crucified him on the cross? They say that he rose from the dead and that he's now still alive and changing lives. And, and we hear that there's this great persecution happening and killing of Christians. Can you imagine? And you know what these people are saying? Yeah, it's really happening. You know how I know? I'm one of them. I'm one of those Christians who is living in Jerusalem and I love Jesus and he loves me. And I want you to know the reason I'm not there is because I'm running from being killed. But as I run, I'm going to tell you about the hope I have in the person who's with me and has saved me. His name is Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that as a sinner, you need a Savior. Did you know that you're a sinner and you need a Savior? God came for you because he loves you. And God came in the flesh and his name is Jesus. And he's not dead. He's alive. In fact, Jesus came and he lived the life I couldn't live. He died the death I deserved to die so that I could gain a righteousness I could never get on my own. For the law can't save me. My good works can't save me. Only Jesus can save me. And by the way, he can save you too. Did you know that? And do you want that? Let me ask you a question. Are you excited to tell people about Jesus? Has he really changed your life? Because I want to tell you something. If Jesus has truly changed your life and the Holy Spirit of the living God is in you, then you're empowered to go into the world and to tell everybody the good news that's made a difference in your life. And if you're unwilling to tell anybody about the good news that's happened in your life, I'm just going to be frank with you. Sometimes it makes me wonder if you've actually experienced the good news if Jesus has really changed your life, if you're truly born again. I want to press you on this a little bit because if Jesus has changed your life and you know he can change someone else's life too, why wouldn't you want that for everybody in the world? For those of you who have truly experienced this, you know you want that. For those of you who are sitting on the fence wondering if you experienced this, well, God's inviting you, come and experience this. For those of you who are here and you've never experienced this and you're like, man, what is this Jesus all about anyway? I want you to know that when you say yes to Jesus, your life will never be the same again. I promise you. Jesus is what you need and what I need. See, seeing sometimes hard times 
We must see hard times as opportunities for us to share Jesus with others. When you're going through hard times in life as a Christian, what's your perspective? Do you see that God is with you, that he's walking through that with you, that he's given you opportunity to use that, to share how God is with you and changing you and molding you and shaping you so that you can encourage others to know Christ like you know Christ? It's not easy, and it's hard. You know, about 16 years ago, my mother-in-law, Gwen's mom, came down with her second round of cancer. The doctors told us her time was up. It was inevitable. She was going to die. So she asked if Gwen and I would get the family together and moderate a family meeting with, like, cousins and aunts and uncles, brothers, and I mean, this big gathering, right? just to have a family time of letting them know what's going on. And then I asked mom, I said, mom, I'd love to pray with you, uh, with the family, and I'd love to share the gospel with the family because outside of Jesus, we don't have any hope. Are you okay with that? And she said, yes. I said, great. So the family's all gathered, and I can tell you, I mean, I'm sick, right? I'm in the other room. I've got the puke bucket. Okay, I'm going to do this. Okay, I mean, you get it, right? It's not easy for me either. Yeah, but you're a pastor. It doesn't matter. This is my family. So we gather everybody together, right? We tell everybody what's going on, lots of tears, lots of sadness, lots of sorrow. Then I get a chance to point people's eyes to Jesus, and, and I get to tell them about the hope that we can have in Jesus and how even through times of hardship and trouble, Jesus is the one who can bring comfort and peace to our lives. And so we pray over mom. I get to share the good news of Jesus and invite people you know, there, there's no results at this time. The only result was that I took advantage of an opportunity that was really hard to do. Let me tell you what resulted in that opportunity. Gwen's mom was healed. And we got another 16 years with her. My grandma was on her deathbed. So we thought. <laughs> and she said, Trin, here's a list of things I want you to talk to the family about. Okay, like this is easy, right? No, it's not. So she's unconscious. Family's all gathered in. I go through grandma's list. Part of that list is talking to them about Jesus. We get done with this time together as a family, and we're like, you know what? Let's let her rest. We're going to go have lunch together. We're going to come back and say our final goodbyes. This is where we were at. We come back to having grandma sitting up in her bed eating a bologna sandwich. <laughs> of all things to eat, nasty. But besides that, that's what happened. You know what that did? That gave us an opportunity now to talk to grandma about the Jesus she wanted us to know about. Gwen and I had been praying for an opportunity for us to share the gospel with her whole family. We didn't think that God would use the death of her mom to give us that opportunity, but he did. It was pretty amazing because many of you know just a few months ago, Gwen's mom died. A Catholic priest let me preach the eulogy at her funeral. And the entire family 
got to hear the gospel. See, God can use hard times to do his work and advance his purposes. But one of the questions we have to wrestle with as Christians is, are we willing to take the hardships of life and see them as opportunities to advance the gospel? And if we are, we can be certain that God will use that to build his kingdom and to grow his church. Amen? Point number two, all Christians are responsible for sharing the good news of Jesus with all people. I use the word all twice in there. I want to reread that so you can hear it. All Christians are responsible for sharing the good news of Jesus with all people. In verse four, we're told that everywhere the church went because they were scattered, they told people about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the word evangelism, proclaiming the good news everywhere we go, gossiping the gospel. In verse five, we pick up Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs that he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Philip was the second of the seven servants mentioned in Acts chapter 6. Just like Stephen, Philip was full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom and grace. Stephen was one of those people who God used not only to serve and meet the needs of the widows and those who were hungry among them, but who God trained up eventually to become an evangelist in the world, as Acts chapter 21, verse 8 tells us. Philip went from Jerusalem to Samaria. Now, Philip is an interesting individual because not only is he one of the seven, but did you know of the seven, all of them were Greek-speaking Jews. What does that mean to you? That means that the Greek-speaking Jews were the outsiders who had come in. And the outsiders who were now in were the ones chosen to care for those amongst. And it was also the outsiders who were persecuted and then sent out. So Philip... He's our example. The church went everywhere and proclaimed Jesus, but Philip, it says, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. This is a different word referring to the type of evangelism that he's doing that really makes him a herald, an announcer of something that has taken place, of importance. He's an announcer that comes with authority upon which what people hear they should listen and obey. To be a herald is to publish or proclaim openly something that has been done that will benefit you. And that's what Philip was doing. Now, it's not an overstatement to say that the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other. It's absolutely true to say that. In fact, the Jews thought of Samaritans as half-breeds who were ethnically polluted, religiously confused, and morally debased. They were corrupt. See, it was the Samaritans who, through the uh, Assyrian uh, time, were scattered amongst the nations of the world, and they intermarried the Gentiles. 
And when they came back to Israel, they were not purebreds anymore. But it was Judah who was led to the Babylonian captivity that didn't intermarry, and they came back, and they were considered purebreds. The Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other because Jews thought that they would be defiled if they hung out with the Samaritans. The Samaritans now had different cultures and customs, a different place of worship. But Jews felt like they had it all, and they had it right. If you were to pick one person in Jerusalem that would never be a Christian, it was the Apostle Paul. So let me ask you this question. If you were to pick one person in your life who you would believe would never become a Christian, who is it? I won't ask you to say it out loud. But I want you to know that God loves that person and wants that person just like he wanted Paul and just like he wanted you. There's hope. There's hope for you. There's hope for me. There's hope for the Pauls of this world. Well, the apostles, it tells us, stayed in Jerusalem. It's likely it was the Greek-speaking Jews. Remember, they, they, they came to Jerusalem from all over the parts of the world, and, and they were there for uh, Passover and then Pentecost. And it was these Greek-speaking Jews who stayed in Jerusalem because they got converted to Christianity. Well, these are the people that were now being persecuted and being sent out into the world. They were called Hellenists. So when Philip shows up in Samaria, why would they identify with him? Maybe differently than they would the apostles. I think because he was a Greek-speaking Jew. He understood what it meant to come from another place, with another cultural setting, with other customs, with other languages, with all these other things that he could identify with them. So what does this passage actually tell us and teach us that we can take from this? It tells us that the gospel is not just for some, it's for everyone. It tells us that the gospel isn't just for a a, a set of, uh, or a special group of people, it's for all people everywhere. And here at our church, we talk about everyday evangelism through practical life experiences through an acronym called BLESS. B-L-E-S-S. And I want to tell you briefly about what this stands for. When we want to think about sharing Jesus with others, excuse me. When we want to think about sharing Jesus with others, we begin with prayer. We pray them into the kingdom. And then we meet them where they're at and we listen with care. That's the L. We take time to eat together or experience life together. We serve them where they're at and love them because they have needs. That's the first S. And then the final S is a time where we get to share with them about Jesus. So as you think about everyday, ordinary life in your life, think about the people you're praying for, who you're taking time to get to know and listen with care, who you're spending time experiencing life or eating together with so that you can get to know them more who you're serving because you know they have a need and you're loving them into the kingdom, and then finally you're beginning to talk to them about Jesus Christ. Practical evangelism in everyday life. This is how we do it. Next week, Pastor Greg's going to actually talk about eating together. And what we're going to ask you to do after each service is go downstairs and share a meal together and not sit with people you know, but sit with people you don't know. How scary is that? 
but we want to build community. We want connection. We want you to know you're not alone as a church, and we are to encourage one another as we get to know one another so we can do life together, and as a big church, we can grow small. What we see is that the people who were hearing the message were eager to hear it and receive it. As they witnessed the miracle signs and wonders that Philip was doing through the power of God that was alive and well in him and that was coming out through him. God can still do miracle signs and wonders today. I witnessed it with my mother-in-law as I prayed over her and we asked God to heal her and he did. And I asked the question, why did he do that? And I really think the answer to that is because I was with family who didn't know the word of God, but God used it just like he used Philip to authenticate the truth of the gospel. One of the things we have today they didn't have then is we have the Bible. So God's not going to do miracle signs and wonders like he did back then because he's got the word of God that he's given to us that authenticate the truth of the message. And therefore, we don't look for the signs, wonders, and miracles. We look to the word of God. But when the word of God is vacant and void, we might see God showing up doing miracle signs and wonders. And when he does, where do we look to authenticate the message of the gospel and the miracle and the sign and the wonder? To the word of God. It's our authority. It's the place we live our lives as Christians. God can still change people's lives today. That's what he's in the business of doing. But in order for the good news to get out, God's asking us to go into the world and share that. And when we share that and it reaches people where they're at, it brings salvation and freedom to their life. We experience fruit of the Spirit, which is really what people are looking for. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and selflessness and self-control. See, that's what knowing God brings to our lives. It brings us spiritual gifts to serve one another. It brings us intimacy with God so that we as Christians can look forward to not going into the world alone, but going into the world with God as we're empowered to bring the message and the good news of God to the world. And finally, verse 8 says, so there was great joy in the city. As a result of bringing the good news to a group of people who the Jews didn't like, but the Christians were sent to, as a result of bringing the good news of Jesus, people found joy. What does that mean? They found salvation in Christ. As a result of proclaiming the gospel, joy is the fruit of of the Spirit. It, It is to experience a fullness or a gladness in life. To have joy is to find delight and contentment in life, regardless of situation or circumstance. I can tell you what most people in this world are looking for. It's happiness. But I can tell you what everybody needs. Jesus. The only way to true joy is through Jesus. And if you're looking for joy in this world, I'm going to point you to Jesus and say he's your answer. And when you find him, you'll experience that true joy. 
Joy comes with the freedom from the bondage of sin, freedom from yourself. We're freed from the destructive life that the world has to offer. And in Christ, we are now freed to love God, to live for God, to serve God, and to share God with others. So as a Christian, let me ask you this question. Where are your eyes fixed as you go through life? Are you listening to what the world says you should be pursuing and how you should be living? If you are, I can promise you, your life will not be filled with joy. But if you have your eyes fixed on Jesus and you're living for him, regardless of your situation or circumstance, what you will experience is joy, true joy in Christ. So rather than looking to the world, let's look to Jesus. And as we look to Jesus, let's help others look to Jesus so they can find him too. See, the Christian life is all about being on mission for Jesus Christ, isn't it? We lost a dear brother in the church this last week, Ed Christofferson. Ed was a champion for Jesus, and he shared Jesus with anybody and everybody he encountered. And he would give out this little card to people, and he would oftentimes give me this card that I could share with people, and I want to tell you what it said. May you live in such a way that those who know you but do not know God come to know God because they know you. That's what this is all about. I want you to hear that again. May you live your life in such a way that those who know you but don't know God Come to know God because they know you. Are you living your life in such a way that that is true? If you are, praise the Lord. If you're not, come on, let's go. If you don't know Jesus, you're invited to come and experience true joy. And as you do, Get on board. Get on mission. Let's go bring Jesus to the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your love for us and for your church, for the Holy Spirit that's in us, for the encouragement we can receive through the life change and transformation that the gospel brings to our lives. God, I pray that as we consider the gospel today and the impact that it can make in the world, that, God, we would take to heart the need as Christians to be a people of God who courageously and boldly go into the world and share the good news to bring life, change, and joy to those around us. In Christ's name, amen.